You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning once again. I invite you to join me in your Bibles in Psalm 6. Psalm number 6. Do a little housekeeping up here, get this out of the way. We don't want anything to come flying off of here in the middle of the sermon. That would be bad. So while you're making your way there to Psalm 6, I'll just let you know. So Psalm 6 is, is one, of, one of these psalms where we don't know for sure the exact context in which the psalm is written. And so there's, there's some divided opinions out there among Bible scholars and commentators and so forth. And so um, I'll address a little bit of that, but what you, what you may hear in my understanding of the context may be something you've not heard before uh, today in Psalm 6. But anyway, just a, a little preview of that. But hopefully you found your way there to Psalm 6. The words will be up here on the screen. Let's read God's Word together. It is a psalm of David. And David writes in verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you and Sheol who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And all God's people said, Lord, Father God, thank you so much for your holy and your precious word and the privilege that I have to stand here and preach it. I'm going to pray, God, that you would just use this opportunity to speak through me. It would rightly divide the truth of your word and rightly applying it to our lives here today. I pray for my hearers. I pray, God, that they would be strengthened and encouraged as we encounter yet another psalm in which David is experiencing yet another trial. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's fair to say, this is not a very controversial statement that I'm about to say. I think it's fair to say that one of the greatest trials ever known to mankind occurred in the life of the man named Job. I'm I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Job. One day, Job is living the best life. He's living his best life now. He has an abundance of children. He has an abundance of possessions. He is in perfect health. Everything is going wonderfully. But then all of a sudden and without warning, all of these things are taken away from him. In the blink of an eye, his children are gone. In the blink of an eye, his possessions are gone. 
And then on top of that, he is struck with this horrible, debilitating illness. The Bible says, from his head to his toes, he's struck with these very painful sores. And they're so painful, in fact, that the Bible tells us that, that Job takes a piece of pottery, I think it is, and he begins to cut himself. So j- just imagine for just a moment, he's in, he's in so much pain that the only way he can consider relieving his pain is by inflicting more pain upon himself. That's the picture that I get when I read that. That's a pretty desperate situation, wouldn't you agree? I think we can all agree Job found himself in a really desperate situation. But then it gets worse. If it could get any more, I mean, you would imagine it couldn't get any worse than that. But boy, it sure does. Because then the Bible tells us that in the midst of all of that, Job receives a visit from his three friends who come to comfort him in his time of trial. And rather than bringing comfort to Job, that's not what they did. They just heaped more misery and more pain and more suffering upon Job by suggesting to Job that his trial was a result of God's discipline or punishment in his life. So, notice with me, friend number one, Job chapter four, friend number one says, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Obviously, Job, you've been plowing and sowing in iniquity, and now God is paying you back for that. Friend number two, Job chapter eight, he says, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Well, obviously, Job, you're not blameless. Obviously, you're an evildoer of some kind, because obviously, Job, God has turned his back on you. He's not taking you by the hand. And then friend number three comes, and friend number three says, Job chapter 11, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. Just confess your sin, Job. Repent of your sin, Job, and and everything will be made whole. You'll be much better Job's friends reason something along these lines. Here's here's their theology. Their theology is God only sends calamities upon the evil and upon the wicked. Job, you've suffered a calamity, and so therefore you are wicked, and God is punishing you. Uh, With friends like that, who needs enemies? Certainly I don't. They didn't help him in his time of need. That didn't comfort him in his time of trouble. All they did was make his trial worse by suggesting that God was punishing him. And here's the thing. As I have studied Psalm 6, I have come to believe that it's very possible, if not likely, that something similar is happening here in the life of David. This is yet another Psalm of David, and David is once again experiencing a trial. But this trial, I believe, is much different than the other trials that we've looked at in the previous Psalms. This trial appears to be the result of a life-threatening illness. That's the trial that David is experiencing. He's about to die. But on top of that, it seems entirely possible, if not likely, that David's enemies have taken this illness as an opportunity to pile on. Like Job's friends, they are suggesting that David's illness, that David is being punished by God, for some unconfessed sin or wickedness. Look with me, if you will, in verse 1, and you'll notice how David begins the psalm. He says, O Lord, O, O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, 
nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, many scholars, not all, but a good number of scholars take verse 1 to mean that David here is admitting that he is confessing that his trial or that his illness is in fact a result of God's discipline for some unconfessed sin. There are a number of interpreters who interpret it this way. Now, according to this interpretation then, the pain of this trial is so severe now that David feels as if God is disciplining him in a fit of rage. You'll see the words anger and wrath there in verse 1. And so it's, it's best illustrated by a father who likes to punish his children in a fit of rage. The kind of father who just flies off the handle without warning. His, parent, his children are, are perhaps disobedient to him and he gets hot under the collar and he can't stand it and he doesn't take a moment to cool off. And so what does he do? In his anger and in his wrath, he yanks that child by the, by the collar or by the seat of his pants and he takes that child out to the woodshed, the proverbial woodshed, and he takes to whooping on that child. And he whoop, 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 one lash after another with the belt. And it's very cruel, it's harsh, it's unusual, it's very painful whelps begin to develop on the backside of this child maybe the skin breaks it begins to bleed you know what kind of father does that it happens from time to time and so according to this interpretation David says yeah I'm being disciplined by God and it and it's so painful I feel as if God is punishing me like an angry father. He doesn't take a moment to, to cool off, but he's vengeful, he's wrathful. In his anger, he's whooping me out by the woodshed. But is that really the case? Is this illness really a result of God's punishment or discipline in David's life? And if so, let us ask this question, would God punish his children? in such cruel and unusual ways? Well, first of all, church, let us recognize that it is true that God disciplines His children. Can somebody say amen? We don't like to hear that, but that is a biblical concept. Doggone, it's lightning out there. And we're going to put God to the test here this morning, I guess. It is true that God disciplines His children. The author of Hebrews, quoting the author of Proverbs, says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So in some sense, church, we can say with confidence that God does discipline his children like any good father. And let us recognize as people living in this modern world that good parents do in fact discipline their children. Can you say amen to that? I, we've lost that in the society in which we live. Or somehow it's cruel and unusual just to discipline your children. I don't think that's the case. Good parents who love their children will in fact discipline their children. God is a good father. And God, God disciplines his own children. But a good father knows, in my opinion, how to discipline his children out of love. Not in anger. They know how to discipline their children in a measured way. A good father does not exact punishment from his children that could be described as cruel and unusual. And I'm just dumb enough to believe that God is a good, good father, and I hope you believe that as well. And so, yes, God does discipline his children. We can be certain of that. But I think, church, that we can also be certain that God's discipline of us, it is measured and it is self-controlled. So the first thing I want you to understand, and yes, it is a biblical concept, God does discipline his children. But secondly, 
I want you to notice this. There is no good reason whatsoever for us to assume that God is disciplining David for some sin. If that were the case, we would expect David to confess of his sin in this psalm. So Psalm 51, verse 3. So Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance. And there the psalmist says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. In that psalm, the psalmist is actually confessing and repenting of his sin. But if you read this psalm very closely, you will notice that David never confesses of sin or repents of sin in this psalm. And there is no hint of wrongdoing whatsoever. In fact, as we will see in just a few moments, it's quite the opposite of that. And so for this reason and a few other reasons, I think it's probably better to view David's experience here similar to Job's experience. So like Job, David has done nothing deserving of God's discipline. And like Job, David is suffering a great physical illness, pain, torment of some kind. And like Job, I think that people are telling David that his physical pain was the result of God's punishment and discipline for some unknown sin. And so perhaps for a moment we can imagine that David entertains the thought of what these accusers, of what these enemies are saying to him. Maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe God has turned His back on me. Maybe God is punishing me. Oh Lord, please don't let that be the case. Oh Lord, please don't punish me in Your anger and Your wrath. Regardless if that's the case, regardless if that is really what's going on here behind the scenes, I think there's still a very important lesson for God's people to learn here, and that is this. If we are not careful, church, we can become just like Job's friends. And we can become just like David's enemies. If we are not careful, we can, be, we can begin to see every pain, every heartache, every trial, every injustice, every sorrow, every tear as divine discipline. We can default to that if we are not careful. Oh, you're experiencing a trial? God must be disciplining you. Oh, I'm experiencing a trial? Oh, God must be disciplining me or punishing me. The problem with that, church, is this. When we attribute every heartache and every sorrow and every pain to divine discipline, then we run the risk of making God the author of evil. And that, my friends, is a bridge too far. So what is the solution to this problem? Well, it's twofold in my opinion. Number one, if you suspect God's discipline in your life, then examine your life. Someone once said, the unexamined life is a life not worth living. You've heard me say that before. That's true of the Christian life. If you suspect that God is disciplining you in some trial that you're experiencing, then by all means, examine your life. Ask God to show you, God, have I sinned? Have I sinned against my brother or sister in Christ? Have I sinned against my neighbor? Have I sinned against you? All sin ultimately is a sin against God. But ask God to show you, and He will. And when he shows you, repent of it, confess of it, as the psalmist did there in Psalm 51. Secondly, let me say this. Rather than defaulting to divine discipline, rather than having that as our default view, oh, well, well God must be disciplining you, I think we should allow the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of this world to remind us that we live in a fallen and a broken world. That's where we need to go when these trials come into our lives. Sometimes we just have to acknowledge 
that these things are part and parcel of life in this fallen and this broken world. As I reminded you of last week, the world that God created was perfect in every way, but that's not the world that we have inherited. This world has been turned upside down. This world now is racked by sin and evil and injustice and all the rest of it. It's not God's doing, it's our doing. We are the ones who have turned this world upside down. We now have inherited this fallen and this broken world in which trials and sorrow and sufferings, that's just part of life in this broken world. We need to remind ourselves of that. But we also need to go a step further. We also need to remind ourselves in that moment of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has promised that the pain and the evil and the sorrow and the suffering of this world will never have the final say for His children who have believed on Him through faith in Jesus Christ in His death on the cross and His burial in the grave and His resurrection from the grave for the promise of forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. God has promised His children that the evil and the sorrow and the suffering of this world will not have the final say. One day we have the sure hope of redemption, full and final redemption, of life lived in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, everything will be as God originally intended it to be. Beloved, this is your hope, and you need to fix your hope there. This is the anchor that grounds you in the storms of life, and you need to cling to this, especially in life's desperate, desperate moments. That's what I think we see David doing here in the rest of this psalm. And as the rest of this psalm will, will show us, this is... A very, very desperate situation for him. That's true regardless of how you understand the context of this psalm. So as the psalm continues, I want you to notice David's complete desperation here. He says in verse 2, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Be gracious is probably better tra translated as be generous, show favor to me, Oh, Yahweh. But then he explains why he needs Yahweh's generosity. He says, quote, because I am, I am languishing. Note that word, languishing. This word speaks of a plant that is withering and weltering away. If you've ever had a loved one or a friend who battled an illness for any length of time to the point of death, you know exactly what this means. When my mother died in 2004, she had been battling cancer for two years. And at the end of those two years, as she neared the final months of her life, she had wilted, withered and wiltered away down to nothing. She was just a shadow of her former self. I had a classmate of mine, a friend of mine from high school, a little over a decade ago, he was diagnosed with colon cancer in his mid to late 30s. He was a young man with a wife and kids, a young family. It's tragic, horrible situation. And the very last thing my friend posted on Facebook, I'll, I'll never forget this, it haunts me to this day, I can still remember it. This is what he posted on Facebook. He said, I don't recommend colon cancer as a weight loss plan. He had just withered away to almost nothing. And that seems to be the case here for David in Psalm 6. He's been battling this illness for some time. Now he's just kind of withering away. He's a shadow of his former self. He's down to skin and bones. And as he withers away and he's on the brink of death, he cries out in desperation, Heal me, O Lord. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. Now look at that word, troubled. I like this word. This word comes from the Hebrew word, Navahala. And I'm probably not pronouncing it right. 
But the, the word literally means terrified or to be terrified out of one's senses. So put that back into the verse. As, as David nears death, he's withering away. It terrifies him. It shakes him to the core. He is filled with dread. He is filled with anxiety. As death knocks on his door, he does not want anything to do with it. He's afraid of it. And that's not unusual for human beings. It's not unusual for some of the great saints in the Bible. Verse 3, he says, My soul, is, my soul also is greatly troubled. Same word, nevahala. My soul is greatly terrified. But you, O oh Lord, how long? How long? This here is a cry of frustration. I hope you can sense the frustration in his voice. Apparently, he's cried out to Yahweh for healing before, but so far, nothing. He's cried out, he's cried out, he's cried out, nothing. He's languishing, he's withering away, he's nearing the point of death. He's filled with dread, he's filled with anxiety. You can just sense and feel the frustration in his voice. And then this question, it just kind of slips out. How long? Unguarded. Almost like an accusation. How long? How long are you going to allow me to suffer like this? I've done nothing deserving of this. That's the sense of this question. How long? You can almost hear him pounding the table. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow this pain and this sorrow and this suffering to go on? Suffice it to say, David finds himself in desperate straits. And as the old saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. And as we go on to the next couple of verses, you're going to see the desperate measures that David employs. He says in verse 4, Turn, O Lord, Yahweh, turn, O Yahweh. It's as if Yahweh has turned His back on David. And David says to him, Turn and look at me. It reminds me of my mother. When my mother was upset with me or when maybe she was reprimanding me when I was a teenager, I would do what teenagers do. Some of you teenagers, you probably do this. I would turn my back on my mother and I would start walking out the room and you just never, ever, ever turn your back on your mother or your father. And my mother would say, you better turn around here and look at me when I'm talking to you. You know what that's like, don't you? And again, I think this is kind of the sense here in David's voice. Hey, Yahweh, turn and look at me. I'm talking to you. I'm crying out to you. Then he says, deliver my life. Snatch my life from death. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, underline that whole thing if you like to mark your Bibles. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Anybody want to take a guess which Hebrew word is being translated as steadfast love? By now you should know it. Say it louder for those in the back. Hased. 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 It's a wonderful, wonderful word. And it refers to God's loyal and covenant love. And so in his desperation, David is appealing to Yahweh's love toward Yahweh's covenant and loyal people. The sense here is that David is challenging God to be true to his character. It's as if David is saying, you are a God of loyal love. Now it's time for you to prove it. I've not been unloyal to you. I'm not deserving of this. I've done nothing deserving of this. You are a God of loyal love. 
Save my life, if for no other reason, for the sake of your said loyal love. Be true to your character, God. That's what he's asking God. Really, that's what he's demanding God to do and to be. As I said, desperate times call for desperate measures. The desperate measures continue in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Here David says, you know what? If I die, no one's going to be left above ground to sing your praises. Who will be left above ground to tell others about you? Who will, who will tell of your glory to the nations, O Lord, if you let me die? Now here's something that might trouble you, troubles a lot of people. But as I understand it, what's really happening here, whether you like it or not, is David is bargaining with God. He's bargaining with God. If I live, Lord, I'll sing your praises. If I live, Lord, I'll tell others about you. And I am not suggesting that he is right to do that. And I am not suggesting that we should follow his example. But let's ask the question, who among us has never done that? Who in this room can say, I've never once tried to bargain with God in some way, somehow? The truth is, this is a very natural human response. David is a human just like you, just like me. This is a very natural human response when we find ourselves in a desperate situation. And as I have said, David is very, very desperate in this moment. He's under excruciating physical pain. He's withering away. He's on the brink of death. He's terrified. He's come to believe that God is punishing him, that God has abandoned him. He's prayed, he's prayed, he's prayed, he's prayed, but to no avail. He has appealed to God's loyal love, but again, to no effect so far. The last lever that he has to pull, this is the last lever that he has to pull, is to bargain with God. To me, this just reveals the utter and complete depths of David's pain and the desperation that he feels in this moment. Then notice what he says in verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Now again, if you like to mark your Bibles, you see that phrase, every night I flood my bed with tears. This is how a literal translation of the Hebrew reads. David says literally, I swim all night on my bed. I swim all night on my bed. Those of you who are my age, maybe a little bit older, you remember when I was a boy coming of age in the 1980s, waterbeds were kind of the rage. All the cool kids seemed to have the waterbed. I didn't have the waterbed, but a lot of kids had the waterbed, and I thought, man, I would really like to have a waterbed. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And then I grew up and I realized that to put water in your house is just not a very smart idea. But really, I, I, I thought, man, that would be cool. I'd really like to have the waterbed. But then I, I actually had the opportunity to sleep on a waterbed. And I discovered that I actually could not sleep on the waterbed because it was like sleeping on a boat. Obviously, it's a waterbed. That makes sense, right? I just could not get comfortable. I was just rolling back and forth, you know, on the sea all night long. I wasn't sleeping at all. Well, David here has a waterbed. He's sleeping on a waterbed. 
not that kind of waterbed. It's a different kind of waterbed. It's a waterbed made from his own tears, and he cannot sleep. He's tossing and turning, tossing and turning all night. He wakes up. His bed is drenched, soaked, wakes up. Well, if he ever went to sleep in the first place. He gets up out of bed, and the sheets are soaking wet. Then he says in verse 7, My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. And so here it is, church, in verse 7, that David's emotional distress is somehow in some way connected to his enemies. Something that his enemies have done or said to him. And this is what leads me to believe that his enemies are piling on on top of this illness. They're accusing him of evil, saying that he is being punished by God for some unconfessed sin in his life. And as David wastes away, as he nears death, he can't sleep, he can't stop worrying. Maybe it's true. Maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe God has rejected me. Maybe He will send me to Sheol for all eternity. And you can wonder, it's no wonder that he's terrified. His bones and his soul is terrified. Whatever the case, whether that's really the context of what's happening behind the scenes, this is a man who no doubt is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. There's no question about that. Now, some scholars have pointed out, church, that David here is exuding signs and symptoms of anxiety and depression. More than one scholar points that out here in Psalm 6. And this raises, of course, an interesting question. Can God's children experience anxiety and depression? And the short answer to that question is absolutely. Without question, absolutely. Psalm 94, 19, the psalmist says, When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Some of the great heroes in the Bible, other than David, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all showed signs and symptoms of anxiety and depression. But perhaps one of the greatest examples of all comes from church history. One of the greatest preachers of all time, a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon. The prince of preachers, if I can get that out of my mouth. The great Baptist preacher of the 19th century in England. At the end of one of his sermons, he had a congregation thousands strong. Totally, totally shocked them when he said, and I quote, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Years later, he said this, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour, just like David, like a child. And yet, I knew not what I wept for. Sadly, too many of God's people today are of the belief that God's people should be free from anxiety and depression. Some people go so far as to call anxiety and depression in the life of a Christian as sinful. And I know because I've seen it firsthand. I've seen people say that. I've seen it come right out of their mouths. And like Job's friends, these people, they may come to comfort with phrases like, well, you just need to pray more, and you just need to read your Bible more, and you just need to have 
more faith. Listen to me, and listen to me really, really well. I am all for all of those things. I am all for reading your Bible more. I am all for praying more. I am all for faith. But just notice that David here has prayed, and he has prayed, and he has prayed. And I dare say, with every ounce of confidence in my being, that Charles Spurgeon prayed more and read his Bible more than all of us in this room combined. And yet he lived with anxiety and depression until the very day that he died, and it may very well have even contributed to his death. You want to read an interesting story, read about the life of Charles Spurgeon sometime. Beloved, we need to recognize that anxiety and depression are oftentimes a physiological response inside of our bodies, our DNA. And because of that, it is not primarily a spiritual condition. It is more often than not a physical condition. It is yet another painful reminder of the fallen and the broken world in which we live. And so for those of you who may be battling anxiety and depression, let me say a couple of things to you. Number one, do not feel guilty. Do not feel guilty. Do not be made to believe that you are somehow inferior or somehow that you are living in sin because you have anxiety and depression. Don't feel guilty. Don't give in to that lie. Secondly, you should be encouraged to know that you are not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Some of the great heroes in the Bible, some of the great heroes throughout church history have suffered with anxiety and depression. They've gone through the very same thing that you have experienced and may be experiencing right now in your life. You should take comfort in that. You're not alone. There are probably several people here in this room who can identify with what you are experiencing. You know, not everyone deals with anxiety and depression. Some people just go through life skipping, you know. That's my wife. Nothing bothers her. She's never anxious. She's never depressed about anything. And she's married to me. But we're not cut from the same cloth. We're not cut from the same cloth. And I've dealt with anxiety and depression my whole life, and I didn't know it until I was an adult. So do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Be encouraged to know that there are others out there. And then thirdly, let me just say this. Seek the help that you need. If you've not done so already, seek the help that you need. Don't be afraid to raise your hand and say, hey, I'm battling with this, and I don't know what to do with it. There is a world of help out there and a lot of Christ-honoring biblical resources to help you manage anxiety and depression. So don't be afraid to say, I need some help. Come talk to me. I can point you in the right direction. Now, with all of that out of the way, in verse 8, this psalm takes a dramatic turn. David here up to this point has been in desperate straits. But now all of a sudden he says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. He tells his accusers, you know what he says? He says, take a hike. Take that stuff somewhere else because that dog ain't going to hunt here. What you were saying to me, <laughs> that God is punishing me for some unconfessed sin, get out of my face. Get behind me, Satan. He says, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Literally, he says in the Hebrew, he hears, 
Yahweh, the sound of my weeping. That's a literal translation. You know what this is? This is a declaration of trust. Yahweh has not yet answered his prayer. He's still in the midst of the storm. But here's what he says to his accusers. You guys are laughing it up now. You're mucking it up now. Just wait. You say that God has punished me. You say that God has abandoned me. Huh? You'll see. Yahweh hears the sound of my weeping. And I know it. This is a declaration of trust. Then he says in verse 9, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Again, literally, He hears Yahweh my lament. Yahweh my prayer will receive another declaration of trust. I know that Yahweh has heard my desperate plea for help. I know that He has heard my prayer. Beloved, this is where we need to follow the example of David in the midst of trials in this life. And in every desperate moment of life. When you find yourself at the end of your rope, as David does here, when you feel that your life is slipping away, as David does here, when you feel that God has turned His back on you and He has abandoned you, it is precisely at this moment when you need to rise up off of the waterbed of life and declare your unwavering trust in God. That's exactly what he does. I know that you hear my weeping. I know that you hear my groaning. I know that you hear my prayers. I know that you have not turned your back on me. I know that I can trust you in every sorrow, every heartache, every pain. Somebody say amen. amen. Job, you know what he said? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And he wasn't admitting that he was being punished by God. He wasn't even attributing all of his trials to, to God. He was just saying, no matter what he allows to come into my life, I will trust in him. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. David here is trusting God with unwavering, unwavering faith and trust. Verse 10, he says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. That's the same word we saw before, twice before. Nevahala. All my enemies will be greatly terrified. They shall turn back and be, and be put to shame in a moment. In a moment. So remember David earlier said, how long? How long, O Lord? How long will you allow my enemies to get the better of me? How long will you allow me to suffer under this illness and this trial? But now all of a sudden, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter how long to David. It doesn't. There's, there's no expectation of immediate deliverance. David is still in the middle of the trial right here. But now all of a sudden, he's made his declaration of trust. And all of a sudden, it just doesn't matter anymore how long it's going to take. What David knows is this. One way or another, God's going to deliver him. One way or another. Whether it be this life or the next life. And he also knows that David's enemies will be put to shame. David knows that ultimate victory is only a matter of time. Why? Because God is who God is. God is, in fact, true to His character. Earlier, He challenged Yahweh, be true to your character. You are a God of loyal love, covenant love. You are a God of Aset. And now, all of a sudden, David knows it. It's firm. He says God is true to His character. God is who God is. He is a God of steadfast, loyal love. Earlier this week, I read a story. It was about a man who had a very unusual password on his phone, and it was pro-nobis. Two words, pro-nobis means for us. It's Latin, for us. So a friend of his 
discovered that this was the password to his phone. He said, hey, what's the deal? It's a very unusual password on your phone. And so then he began to explain to his friend, it means for us. But then as he was explaining what it means, he broke down and he was sobbing and he, and he was crying. And his friend was like, hey, what, what's the deal? Why, why does this phrase, pro nobis, why does it bring you to tears? And the man then explained that after he walked through deep personal pain and sorrow, that true healing came for him when he discovered that God is pro nobis, that God is for us. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, if God is pro nobis in Latin, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In all of these trials and all of these sorrows and all of these sufferings, no, no, no. We are conquerors through Him who is for us. Pronobus. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. I know we, we hear that a lot. We quote that a lot. But it, it's a beautiful and powerful text. Beloved, in your next trial, you need to remember that God is true to His character. That's who He is. And you need to remember that. You need to trust that. He is a God of loyal love. He is a God who is for you. He is never a God who is against you. That's not who God is. And you need to declare your unwavering trust in Him, no matter how dark the days may be. Remember what David says here, his declaration of trust. He hears Yahweh, the sound of my weeping. He hears Yahweh, my lament. Yahweh, my prayer, will receive. Pray that, say that, remember that in every trial and every difficulty. Father, thank you so much for your great love and your wonderful grace. Thank you that you are a God who is true to your character. Thank you that you are a God who loves your children. And we can be confident that when you discipline your children, it's measured. It's done in self-control. It's done out of love. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for proving your undying love for us once and for all on the cross of Calvary where you and the person of Jesus Christ died for us, died for our sins and made a way for us to have the promise of a full and final redemption of, eternal, of eternity, eternal life in your presence, the new heavens, the new earth. Help us all, O Lord, to fix our hope there and there alone in the trials of this life. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.